hands and close your eyes. It's half past midnight, and you're listening to the Ghost Story Pass. Welcome to the Ghost Story, guys. I'm Brennan Store. I'm Paul Bestall. And this is a show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun has set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 168, and we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about, but can never quite reach. Paul, my friend, how are you doing? I'm all right. I'm surviving. The haunted house is testing me, but I will not be broken. It sounds like the dogs are testing you more than the haunted house, based on what you were saying off air. <laughs> me and my shadows, yes. I might stick some dusters to the tails or something that can do a bit of work while they're following me around the house like Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you're, you're house, still house-sitting for your mom. Hmm. And now, was it... So you were there when you picked up that strange sound on a recent episode of Mysteries and Monsters. Yeah, it's right weird, isn't it? I've no idea what it was. So you, you still haven't been able to, pardon me, you still haven't been able to identify that? No, it was on, it was on the guest's track. It wasn't right. on my track. So, because the bit I've shared, it's obviously me just cleaning it up. So obviously you can see my track's the top one and the guest one's the bottom one. But I got a message saying, whoever that is, they obviously really like night people as well. When he, and he says something like, um, when he wrote his book, Night People, and then it just goes, yeah. Goodreads is big in hell, I'm told. <laughs> but that um, interview was recorded at my house. Oh, okay. So that's not at your mom's place. No. Well, the weird does follow you, my friend. We, I mean, we know this just from the conversations we've had over the over the years. But uh, yeah, I, I'm not surprised. I've not heard the footsteps yet because there is something in the attic. Oh. So I'm, I'm, we never know. But you only usually hear that if you're in my mum's room. And that's, that always happens about 1am. You can hear somebody walking about, but it's not big enough for somebody to stand up and walk about in. Interesting. And you were saying that there was a few other sounds that cropped up recently. Yeah, there was a uh, knocking last night, like, duh, 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 like somebody was knocking at the door, disturbed right. the dogs. The dogs were looking at the door, but there was nobody there. She could see the front door from where we were. There was nobody there. Bangs, little knocks here and there, strange sounds. Then I had that incident with the pen. Oh, yeah, the disappearing pen. Disappearing, reappearing pen. What else happened? There was something else. I put something down. Yeah, I put a cup down in the kitchen on Monday. Went out the kitchen, went upstairs, came back downstairs, and the cup was in the sink. Oh. I mean, that's helpful. Well, it is, yes. Could have washed it up. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's uh, let's not get too, uh, too demandy <laughs> here. I, I would say before we start telling them to wash things, send them here so I can straighten up my office. You know, I've got this divider now, so for the video clips, no one sees the nightmare that is my office but uh yeah i know let's let's get if you've got some spectral help send it over mm. that, that, that's made me think actually because obviously the poltergeist is the opposite of that but i'm sure i've read a couple of accounts probably in peter underwood books where there have been reports of ghosts tidying things up that's almost in line with uh, house spirits like house spirit mm. lore you know sort of i guess brownies would that be a, a yeah. creature that's said to, to tidy up yeah we call them boggarts Around our right. neck of the woods. Boggarts, bogies, brownies, sprites. It's a, a very similar kind of set of rules as, as for the fae. You know, leave them some honey and cheese and milk and things and they'll uh, tidy your house up, clean your fireplace out and stuff. And woe betide the homeowner that does not. 
And as I recall, part of the lore is don't thank them as well. Is that right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, they're very humble. Right. Like us. I was going to say, that that describes us to a T. <laughs> Handsome, powerfully masculine, but most of all, humble. Like apple pie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> As for me, nothing, nothing paranormal at my end, although uh, I, last night I did get to do something very strange, and that was I accompanied my lovely wife to a, uh, now, I'm going to say this, you, you know what I mean, to a hardcore show. Yes, I know what you mean. Yes. Not, that, not the George C. Scott hardcore kind of show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it turns out that my wife's coworker is, uh, or was in his younger days, he was in this hardcore band called distorted influence <laughs> and i guess for i don't know the circumstances exactly but they got back together and last night was their first live show in 30 years so a bunch of her co-workers went down to centennial square and we joined them and it was, it was a lot of fun i i had a really great time they're a great band they they've really they still got it well i think there's a lot of musicians who over the last three years well a lot of people in general i think the pandemic has kind of made people realize just how tenuous a grip on life we have yeah and therefore perhaps things that we we put to one side or we thought we were too old to to re-engage with or things that perhaps we've lost touch with a lot of people all around the world have sort of re-engaged with things that they actually love to do and and things they love to do and it's music especially there seems to have been a lot of bands who haven't done a lot for quite a while who seem to have come back together I know Elliot from The Revenants, who we always talk about in the show because uh, we release his music through the label. Uh, that's what happened for him, as I understand it. You know, just before the pandemic, he was getting this idea, maybe I want to do that again, because he, he had played around the LA scene a lot in the 70s. And I think he actually had brief success, maybe had an album released with a different group, then gave it up. And uh, then during the pandemic, he started making music. And I think over the course of the last three years, he's made like 150 albums, something ridiculous ridiculous like that which you can get on streaming platforms everywhere but uh yeah man i, I mean even myself i just kind of realized during that whole period you know shit you don't have as much time as you think you do i didn't because i had to bloody work regardless <laughs> i mean I, I did too but my work is not as all-encompassing as yours 90 percent of britain got three months paid leave and i would bloody i've been to answer the phone to them all i mean canada had a, had a <laughs> system set up where you could get paid if you didn't have any income below a certain level you could get get just get a check for two thousand dollars a month mm. uh but because of the show i wasn't eligible now all that money wasn't mine mm. but it still put me over the limit so i couldn't apply for it so i had to work during the so i remember april 1st 2020 as things are just you know everything's on fire basically i'm out there delivering food to pay my rent what a what a good time <laughs> speaking of great times paul we have a hell of an episode lined up. This is an episode that I've wanted to do uh, for a few years now, actually. That is The Haunting of Iowa. Mm. Why Iowa, someone might say. Paul even might say. <laughs> Why Iowa, Brent? I'm so happy you asked, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> because a few years ago, uh, more than a few years ago now, everything's a few years ago, Paul. I recognize the pandemic shit's been like three years. But anyways, pre-pandemic, I read... The book by Corey Taylor, who of course is the vocalist for Slipknot and Stone Sour and a bunch of other things, called uh, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Heaven. And he mentions a couple things that happened to him, a couple of his own experiences, some of which are very famous, you know, the story of, of the mansion they stayed in while recording Slipknot's third album, The Subliminal Verses, 
Uh, but he also talked about some stuff that happened growing up in Iowa and his story involved a shadow figure in the corn. So I, that kind of put in my head, ah, oh, geez, you know, I, I, you don't see that kind of stuff much, right? People kind of focus on the famous places or places that are famously haunted, I guess. And I wasn't aware of Iowa being famously haunted. So I, I've always kind of thought, ah, back in my mind, I want to do that. Just never got around to it. And then after the last episode, I said to Luke, I said, let's, let's make that happen. And in a hell of a little uh, synchronicity, Paul, just, I want to say two days after I made that decision and Luke delivered the stories, I was contacted by our listener, Chris, who had me over for dinner in Montreal with his, with his wife, Nikki. Hmm. And he was recommending a book to me. That book was Corey Taylor's A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Heaven. <laughs> so just a, a happy little coincidence there, which I, I took as a sign. It was, okay, it is officially <laughs> time to do the Iowa episode. And so on this episode, we have some really cool stuff because I asked Luke specifically to look for weird things. And boy, did he find weird shit. So on this episode, we are going to be exploring the haunting of Iowa. But before we do that, of course, we have to thank our patrons. This one's for the patrons. Patrons, you are the self-titled debut album to our Slipknot, which is to say you are proof that great things can happen and even greater things are to come. Of course, we'd like to thank all our patrons. For right now, we would especially like to thank our latest patrons. They are Matt Dyke, Stephanie Matechik, Jennifer Mosier, and Leon Theron. Guys, thank you so, so much. We cannot tell you how much we appreciate your support. Everyone who downloads the Ghost Story Guys, you help make us who we are. But patrons and Apple Podcast subscribers, you are the ones who truly make the show go. Without you, we wouldn't be able to do this at the level we do, and we are deeply, deeply appreciative. If you listen to the end of the show, we'll tell you about all the cool shit you get. But for now, we will say, if you subscribe at patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys, or to GST Premium via Apple Podcasts, you get early access to ad-free episodes. And who doesn't want that? Ads suck. Again, that's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys, or subscribe to GST Premium via Apple Podcasts. One last thing before we dive into stories from the Hawkeye State, and that's of course a big shout out to our composer, Jerry Smith. Jerry is a musician and film journalist from Central California. His new project, Street Witch, is on streaming platforms everywhere. His latest single is entitled Sexting and was just released. Again, that's on streaming platforms everywhere as Street Witch or at streetwitch.bandcamp.com. The W in which is two Vs. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with the haunting of Iowa. Ooze. My only real encounter with the weird is something I'm not totally sure about. It happened. I can say that much for certain, but what was it, or why? That is a mystery to me now, and probably forever. At the time, it was mid-2000s, and I was 15 years old, walking my newspaper delivery route in Cresco, Iowa. Basically, I grew up in Cresco, and in that time, it had its share of fucked up stuff happen. Not like Stranger Things, though. The more awful, mundane, human kind of fucked up. In 2001, a carnival worker killed a 25-year-old woman and her 8-year-old daughter, then told his mother he didn't know why he did it. That's the kind I mean. Thankfully, this isn't that kind of story. 
The paper route was something I would walk in the early morning dark. I'd have my courier bag strapped to me and be out the door by 5 a.m. On this particular morning, like every other, I left my house and started down the sidewalk, north, towards the intersection. On my way was a large three-story apartment building that I believe used to be an old school, and was, at least back then, used as storage by the adjoining fitness center. Just beyond the fitness center was the mouth of an alleyway, and it was about there when a strange feeling began to overtake me. The feeling was that something undefinable, but very real, was very, very wrong. Imagine a heaviness in the stomach, and the creeping sensation of unease. Trying to find the source of my discomfort, I looked into the alley and saw the strangest, hell, the creepiest thing ever. Underneath the lamppost, illuminated by the light, was a puddle of darkness. I have no idea what it was. It moved and rippled like water, but definitely wasn't. It was thicker, heavier, like ooze. Some people I've told this story to have said it was probably oil, but I don't think that's right either. And I'll tell you why. I never got close to the stuff. My survival instinct was too goddamn strong, and instead I kept on walking. Maybe 30 minutes later, the sunrise still some way off and the shadows just as heavy as when I first passed, I came back to the mouth of the alleyway, and that ooze was gone. So far as I know, oil does not evaporate, and it seems unlikely someone would have done such a thorough job of cleaning so early in the morning. Even then, I think it probably would have left a stain on the concrete. What the hell was it? A figment to my imagination? A doorway to hell? Ooze from another world? I don't know. And Paul, if I know anything, I know that there are now some Ninja Turtles living in Cresco, Iowa. <laughs> well, nothing surprises me. Cresco is, um, has, uh, has a few strange things going on in that particular place, so I'm not surprised. Does it? Mm. It's allegedly one of the most haunted theatres in, in the Midwest, Cresco. No shit. I think vaudeville, is that right? Performers? Right, yeah. Often seen on stage and then disappear. No kidding. Mm. And then it's also got one of those brilliant ghosts that sits in the audience watching people do runs and practice their lines and stuff, and when people spot them and try to approach them, they disappear. No shit. Interesting. I mean, that's going to come up again later in the show, the idea of spotting people who then disappear after you see them, but I, I wasn't aware of that in Gresco. There are some very strange... There are a couple of very odd stories in Iowa that I really, that make me chuckle. There's one in particular that I'll save for later that uh, makes me laugh because it's such a ridiculous ghost story. It's brilliant. Sweet. I love ridiculous ghost stories. <laughs> I, the only thing I could really find from Cresco in terms of... I, mind you, I was looking for the more human stuff that the author was talking about. Mm. I found there was a, a really interesting missing person, or I should say, I guess not a missing person, a murder mm. from, I think it was 1974. Five, if I remember right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In 1975, the body of a woman named Connie Kraft was discovered in a gravel pit northwest of Cresco, the uh, Albion gravel pit. Are you familiar with the case? I've heard her name before, yes. I guess she was going to a cosmetology school in, I think, Rochester, Minnesota, just across the uh, state line. What is a cosmetology school? Uh, I, like an esthetician kind of, I think like that, like makeup is that? Oh, all right. So, well, we call them, you know, we're very original here in the UK. We call them beauty schools. Right. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't, I don't know why. I mean, I don't even know if that's still a term. The, the article I found mentioned that. I don't know if that term is still used. Well, you it makes more sense. It's, it, it makes it sound more important. Cosmetics, cosmetology. Sounds good it, to it me. It makes sense. Yeah. 
So she was going to cosmetology school, but she came home to visit her family. And she was last seen on the steps of the old armory about 1230 at night, uh, just across from the police station. And the next morning, a body was found in the quarry. Now, the, uh, the coroner, I guess, fixes the time of death at 1.30 in the morning. So mm-hmm. whatever happened to her happened between when she was last seen at 12.30 and 1.30. And w- it's kind of terrifying when you think about it because that, I mean, that's an hour to go from totally mundane, hanging outside shit to just gone from this earth. And I, and I understand that's a thing that just happens, but it's a terrifying thought. It's peculiar. The, the more true crime programs I watch and documentaries, it, it is quite frightening the amount of serial killers that were running amok across the US in the 70s. Um, what happened to her is straight out of Ted Bundy's playbook. Is it? Yeah, he used to hit people over the head. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because of course, the only marks found on her were consistent with what have been either a rock or a, a blunt instrument on her head. Yeah. Huh. So, um, who knows? I mean, I mean, there's that many of them that were wondering about at that particular time and some of the terrifying numbers that they got. I mean, you only have to look at, you know, I think there was like five different serial killers all active at the same time in LA in the late 70s. So. Jesus Christ. As if LA wasn't dangerous enough. <laughs> you know, Hillside Strangler. And then you'd got, um, there was another woman who was called Bundy and her husband. He was going around decapitating people and stuff. And Good times. Well, at least real estate was cheap back then. Although for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't then the Night Stalker turned up and everybody moved out. See, what you got to do, you just go back in time, buy some property in, the, in Southern California and just wait for them to take lead out of everything. And boom, boom, Bob's your uncle. Got yourself some real valuable real estate down there. I'll bear that in mind when I invent it. Perfect. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much my plan. <laughs> yeah, the whole Cleopatra thing was taken off the table when I found out about uh, deodorant being a modern invention. It's still to reach some places, from my experience. <laughs> yeah, uh, one of those places is my gym. <laughs> Just briefly before we head on to the next story, it occurs to me, this is a little bit similar to the story from the Chicago episode. There was, um, I'm just going to find it really quick here. I- I'm certain yeah. we had a similar story in the Chicago episode. Yeah, it rings a bell with me. Yeah, here it is. It's The Blob. So it wasn't, mm. it wasn't necessary. It wasn't ooze in the ground, but they did, they used the same terminology. They said it had a kind of flowing quality, like a blob of oil hovering in one spot, like a lava lamp. And that person, they, they, they just saw it floating there as they were, as they were commuting outside of Chicago. But, uh, yeah. Huh. What an odd thing to have turn up again. Yeah. And it's not in the scheme of things. It's still in the Midwest as well, isn't it? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. So huh. uh, it's, it's a small trip if you're a disembodied body of ooze. I suppose. That's it. It's a, it's a hell of a commute. I can't think of a news pun, Paul, and it's just, it's tearing me up inside. <laughs> Burn it down. In 1979, when my mother was 15 or 16, a large group of my extended family were gathered in my grandma's house in rural Iowa. They were there to discuss what was to be done with my recently deceased great-grandmother's house. You see... My great-grandma had hated the house, and so in the final six months of her life, she'd built another house on the same plot of land, which wasn't in accordance with state zoning laws. Logical thinkers that they were, my family decided that they would do the obvious and ask my great-grandmother herself 
via a Ouija board. Night fell and the female members of the family walked out into the night to do their seance at her house, which was just down the dirt road from her new preferred home. The old house was built in the mid-19th century style and had six bedrooms and was huge from what I can gather. However, it didn't have electricity, so they had brought candles to light the space. About half of the women in attendance were believers, with the other half being sceptics, which led to some frustration with the asking of questions to the Ouija board. However, sometime in the night, the energy of the house totally changed. One of my aunts asked if Margaret was there, but got no response from the board. Instead, a piece of tinsel in the doorway, left over from my uncle's birthday celebration, started to swing like a pendulum. It would be easy to say that wind or atmospheric pressure could have accounted for this change. However, keep in mind that it was a large house and the room surrounding the central living room acted as a wind block. It's also worthwhile to point out that the candles at no point flickered or went out. The movement continued with every question, back and forth. Finally, someone asked what was to be done with the house. The tinsel stopped moving altogether and then began to violently move in the opposite direction. The tinsel then stopped responding after that question, so they moved back to the Ouija board. No sooner had they done this, when it spelt out a very simple message. Burn it. They hauled ass back home, called the volunteer fire department, and did just that. Yeah, before anything else, I'm just going to say this. If a Ouija board ever tells you to burn something down, do not do that. Just don't. Why not? I. All right. Well, okay. So that we got another one here for the uh, must never be allowed in your divination again crowd. <laughs> Carry on. I'll get my mum's pendulum out from her special. special <laughs> What's telling box? me to burn your house down, Bren? Well, I, I got to do what the, what the pendulum says. That's <laughs> a bit, bit strange, that. Eh? A little bit. I mean, I understand we're living in sort of a very credulous era, but I just feel like that's that's next level. Again, like well, the Ouija board said we have to, we have to sacrifice our firstborn to ball. Well, we better get going. That kid runs fast. <laughs> I am convinced that I have heard stories of people receiving instruction from the Ouija board and then following it up with terrible consequences. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. I, I should be, but I'm not. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Strangely, I was speaking to Kev. Today, actually, because he's, uh, he's doing a, a, a spooky countdown in October. And one of the cases oh, he mentioned cool. was the infamous Michael Taylor exorcism case, which actually happened two miles away from where I'm sitting now. Oh, um, wow. So I just said, oh, yeah, I know all about that case because we heard about it as kids. It's a horrific case. Interesting. What, what are the broad strokes? So Michael Taylor was a uh, Christian of a sort of member of the Church of England, who were a little bit more eccentric than normal, had begun to clearly show the signs of severe mental illness. However, the people around him believed that he was possessed by a demon and therefore Naturally. decided to do a 12-hour exorcism of him overnight in a local Methodist church here in Barnsley. It didn't particularly work. Taylor attacked several of the congregation through the night and eventually collapsed at the end of it. But oh, man. they believed that he was cleansed um, 
there was all kinds of things that he was being led into temptation by sexual urges for another member of the congregation and all that nonsense. So anyway, off he went and they thought that was that. Only for uh, within weeks, um, the police found Taylor naked on the street, covered in blood. And when they went to his house, they found that he had killed his wife and the dog with his bare hands. Jesus Christ. Um, And he didn't just kill them. Not if he was covered in blood. If you kill someone with your bare hands, you got to do a lot of work to end up covered in blood. I will say now this, I will say it very briefly and I won't go into detail. However, this may trigger some people. He ripped his wife's face off and uh, tore the dog into pieces with his hands. Jesus Christ. That is the worst thing I've heard, Paul. Sorry. And I have heard some horrible things. (laughs) And uh, unsurprisingly, he was uh, sent to uh, a mental institution where he was actually then released in 2012 and was rearrested um, for sexual offences against children. Um, and his whereabouts currently are unknown, but he's still in the West Yorkshire area. So he's out? He's out and about somewhere, yeah. I think he got out what about four years ago. What the fuck? If I mistakenly left a joint in my bag when I come to visit you in, in September, I would end up doing more jail time than this maniac. It's Yikes. a crazy story. It's a, it's a prime example of um, uh, care in the communities, they call it here, because we don't have any, we've, we've got very few secure mental institutions now. They've, they've shut most of them down in the UK. As I'm, I'm not sure if that's the same all over the place. Yeah, from what I understand. And essentially just heavily medicate people and allow them into the, into the wider community, which, you know, I appreciate things have changed a lot in, in 40 years. And, and God, you know, some of the older mental institutions were not very nice. Um, to say the very least. Um, but um, Taylor seems to be one of those particular characters that should not be out on the streets. Well, and I feel like there has to be a middle ground between brutalizing these people and sending them out into the world with no support. Because ultimately, that's, you know, you, you, that's what you're doing. Hmm. You know, I mean, they need support. It's not about punishing them. It's just about these people need to be helped take care of. They obviously cannot, some of them cannot take care of themselves. Some of them cannot manage their medications on their own. I, and that's not a day guy. I have someone in my family who they cannot ma- manage their medications on their own. It doesn't make them less of a person, just means that they need help managing their medication. But you stick them out in the world, that's like saying, oh, get the fuck out of here. This is not our problem anymore, is what you're doing. And it's, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare for everyone. It's a nightmare for the person because the, the person who perpetrates this, by and large, they don't want to be doing this shit. You know, it's not like they, they're rubbing their hands together going, oh, perfect. Time to go lower property values in my neighborhood. Like, that's, that's not the plan. It's just this is what it leads to. Hmm. There was a story here. There was uh, a kid, his family took him to the emergency room. They said he's having a mental health crisis. We really need help. And so they sent him home and uh, he, he killed his father. And I mean, that's a, that's a fairly well-known story here in Victoria. And it's, but it's, it's not uncommon. You know, hmm. like there are other similar stories of people who were in desperate need of help. I mean, there was a young woman who, uh, who went missing. I, I won't say the name, but there was a young woman who went missing here, and I mean, she also re- would was known to kind of refuse help from her family. But I feel like if there had been some facilities, it may have helped, may have helped maybe change her course to some degree because she is she went and remains missing. It's shocking. I mean, it's it's it is it, it's a sad state of affairs where people clearly need support and they're just not getting it from the people that are supposed to look after them. You can't you can't close institutions and then allow these allow people. To, to simply just be left unattended or without any support network. It's not fair. Agreed. 
Yeah, well, because part of the problem, I think, is everything's viewed through the lens of, of crime and punishment. That's, that's just a, really a problem over here, and I assume it is over there because your government are idiots, <laughs> you know, just, just like ours is and just like you know, the, the American government is. And they, everything is viewed through this, you know, I have a boner for punishment lens. And so it's just, well, if, if you're not doing better, it's because you don't want to, which means you are lazy, which means you are bad. And therefore, we're just going to, you know, if, if we can't put you in prison, which is a terrible solution, then again, for people who are mentally ill, not for criminals, criminals belong in prison. And I mean, that's, okay, that's a larger, broader argument. This is the ghost story, guys. It's not the socioeconomic guys. But um, <laughs> yeah. It's two, two particular things. Sexual, sexual perpetrators and pedophiles are things I feel very strongly about in regards to the community. No, that's fair. As I, I don't disagree. I think if if we took decisions from the Ouija board there, then yes, burn them. Burn them all. <laughs> okay. Don't listen to the Ouija board when it tells you to burn things unless it's... No, hang on. I, that's advocating for mob violence. I can't say that. Uh, well, you know, okay. I mean, you can't see this unless you're watching the video version. <laughs> Paul shrugging. Uh, but the, well, that's not the official position of the ghost story, guys. But uh, I mean, you know, okay, he's nodding. Okay, he's not. No. All right, my I got my producer's in my ear. He is saying, "Bail, bail, bail!" Pull the ripcord. <laughs> when Subway broke the universe, this happened on June eighteenth, nineteen ninety-three, in Princeton, Iowa. It was the day before my younger sister's wedding. The day was warm, clear, and beautiful. My mom and I had exactly nothing to do that day, except for one job. My mom and I had exactly nothing to do that day. Save for one job, we had to pick up my sister's wedding dress between 3 and 3.30 from the seamstress's house in a town that was about an hour's drive away. This task was, of course, super important to my sister and I, but it was also super important to the seamstress because she was going to leave for the airport at 3.30. My mom and I planned our day around this one simple task. There were relatives coming from out of town, and we'd already prepared my mom's house and RV for the guests. My sister was running errands, my kids were with my brother, and everyone else was gone. So on this day, it was just my mom and I with basically not much to do. At 10 a.m., we decided to open up the RV, which was parked in mom's driveway, to air it out and double-check that it was ready. We went out there, opened the windows, and dusted a few things. After that, we decided we'd go get an early lunch, bring it back to the RV to eat, and then leave to pick up the dress at 1.30. So at 10.50, we drove to the local subway. The drive was short, and we got there a few minutes before they opened at 11. They were still opening when we went in, taking lids off the veggies and stuff like that. We were the first and only customers there, and both ordered salads and iced tea. The salads were crisp and cold, and we got our cold drinks in the paper-style cups. By 11.10, we were back in the RV and dug into our lunch. Right as we popped the tops off the salad, Mom told me she'd gotten a Neil Diamond album for later that evening, so she and the older folks could rock out. This cracked us both up, and while we were laughing, my mom glanced at her watch. She looked confused and asked me what time it was. I looked at my watch, and it said 2.15. Surely this wasn't right? Mom said her watch said 2.15 also. We both looked down on our salads, which we barely touched. Our cups of tea hadn't even had time to sweat in the heat of the June day. My mom picked up her bowl of salad and said, It's still cold. I felt mine, and it was too. The paper cups didn't show any signs of leakage like paper cups will after holding liquid for a few hours. We decided there had to be a mistake. Surely both our watches were acting up. 
There was no way we'd been sitting there for three hours. We'd only taken a few bites and the salads were still crisp and not gunky and limp like when salad sits out. Neither of us had even taken a drink of our tea. Either way, we packed up our still cold salads, picked up our still cold, non-sweaty drinks and went into the house. Every clock said 2.15. It was unbelievable. We were still not convinced, so we called time and temperature to make sure. The recording said it was 2.15 p.m. Neither of us believed it, so we called it back, and again, it was 2.15 p.m. We were still very uncertain that it was really that late in the day, but we put everything in the fridge and left to get the dress. The car clock said 2.16. During the drive, we tried to figure out what had happened, but had no explanation. Due to heavy traffic, we were 10 minutes late. By the time we got there, the seamstress was getting in her car to leave. She'd already called my sister to complain. We talked the seamstress into letting us pick up the dress. She was angry about it, but relented, and had us follow her back into her house. We had to call my sister from the seamstress's house phone to assure her we were there. Then we had to listen to the seamstress tell us we nearly ruined her vacation. Finally, we got the dress and walked out the door with the seamstress rushing out behind us to catch her plane. We got out of there and back to my mom's where my sister was waiting. She wasn't as upset as she was relieved that we'd gotten the dress. We told her our story, and she was as baffled as we were. We did eat the salads later, and the paper cups did get squishy from the liquid. We still wonder how we lost three hours, and my sister still teases us about how we had one job. Paul, as someone whose one job at his wedding was to order the taxi cab for the family and forgot to do that, I feel targeted by that story. <laughs> Yeah. Don't take it personally. I think my family took it personally when the cab didn't come get them and the uh, guy who owned the cabin's Range Rover had to take them. The Range Rover <laughs> encrusted with mud and shit. Yeah. Welcome to Cornwall. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah, you're lucky you didn't send the hairy hands to come and get them. I mean, that might have been faster. Who knows? Maybe my mother-in-law could have met someone. <laughs> None of my family listen to the show, so I can say that. <laughs> so I, I looked up Princeton, because again, I, I don't know much about Iowa. I've never actually been. The closest I came was uh, when I went to that wedding in Minneapolis in 2017 with Mike, and we were, we were actually going to drive to Iowa just to say we did. And then we, I think we got part of the way there. We ran out of time. So I, I looked up Princeton, and the only thing I found is they used to have this very popular haunted farm attraction which is like one of those big farms where they have a corn maze and all that shit. And uh, it was called the um, Haunted Carter Farm. And the, the, the most notable thing I, I found there is, and, and I sort of assume this is what killed it, one of the Endless Children of the Corn remakes was shot there. Mm. And I figure if anything is going to cast a pall over a place, it's that. <laughs> yeah, well, I think Iowa is one of those states that it's got two or three... Uh, terrifying real stories. Everything else seems to pale into insignificance in comparison with some of those. Do we get any of them yet or do we have to wait? Well, I'm more than happy to share. Uh, the, the infamous Valeska house murders. Oh, of course. Yeah, you know, way back in the early days of the show, I was going to do an episode on that before we kind of went to the stories format. It's uh, one of the great strange things that I've learned doing Mysteries and Monsters in this show. It's the amount of axe murders that occurred in the early part of the 20th century, particularly in the northern United States. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah, you and I were talking about this, man. When, when, those, when folks back in those days wanted things dead, they had to work for it. 
Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd never heard of it. And then uh, the ladies on Morbid did it and covered the case. And I was just... It, because it's an unsolved murder, nobody was ever convicted for it. Six, I think six people, including children, were murdered by axe. So you've got to you've got to work on the principle of if you're hitting somebody with an axe, there's a good chance one of them will come round after a whack, at the very least, and scream. So how none of the others heard it and they were able to move around the house because they said it was like somebody had moved around the house silently and killed them all. Because I think they were all. I think most of them were killed in their beds. And they're not typically a silent weapon, the axe. You don't see Splinter Cell out there using hatchets to uh, off insurgents. No. It's uh, it's such a strange, strange story. It's one of those that makes you just scratch your head. I know when I spoke to Chad Lewis, there's one that he covered in one of his books, which um, is another one, but that's another true story where a mother killed all the children and then tried to drown herself, and um, she was rescued but passed away fairly quickly um, for her husband because uh, her husband was going to leave her or something and so she wanted to, to exact the ultimate revenge. My God. Um, and, and killed all, all their children. I think they had six or seven kids. She killed them all. And then I think, did she set fire to the house? It's, it's, we covered it on, on one of my episodes with Chad. I'll have to check it. But um, it's a horrific story. It's on a stretch of road called M- M- The Mur- Murder Curve, I think it's called. I feel like it's a little bit of determinism happening there. I mean, I would probably not buy that house. <laughs> or was it called that afterwards? I think it's, it's got the name afterwards. Okay, okay. Yeah. I just imagine uh, the cops got... turning up and going, well, I mean, <laughs> finally. <laughs> but um, yeah, Valeska is one of those very, very, very strange cases that um, just, it's just weird. And obviously since, since the murder... The house has now become a reputation as one of the most haunted locations because the original house is still standing. Oh, wow, okay. Both parents, Josiah and Sarah, and their children, Herman, Catherine, Boyd and Paul. Oh, there were eight people killed. Jesus Christ. So there was both parents, four children, and two family friends who were stopping there. All were killed in their bed. Terrifying. Uh, and the axe was left in the room where the two daughters were sleep. Well, were sleeping. Nobody was ever caught. There was no, nobody had any idea who could have done it and why they could have done it. It just d- didn't make sense. There was stories and rumors about reasons, but there was nothing concrete. Isn't that how the DeFeo murders happened? Well, he went around and shot them all in bed. Yeah, but, but it was this kind of situation where you would think someone would hear Somebody this. would wake up. Yeah. Well, that's why there are theories that okay. Ronald didn't do it on his own. Right. Because um, I think six, he killed every other member of his family, didn't he? I believe so, yeah. Both parents, and they were all shot in bed. Yeah. And I'm not sure. I think they suggested that he may have drugged the family. Oh, okay. But I'm not sure if they ever conclusively proved that. I'm not sure if the autopsies proved that they'd had sleeping tablets or something. But thankfully, after, after that, nothing's been connected with Amityville ever. So, um, no. you know, after, after the murder, it's, it seems to have just settled down into a normal house and in, in no way has a work of fiction been built around it in the no. 45 years since. No, are you, you, no, it's not like some unscrupulous scam artist dirtbags made up a legend that has endured as one of the most popular paranormal franchises. No, oh man. Next, you're going to tell me that there's a, a couple of creeps who have become famous for the last 40 years for fighting demons, even though they were admitted con artists. And 
he creeped on a teenage girl. But uh, no, that wouldn't happen. You know. <laughs> oh God! Imagine if it had though. What a terrible industry we would be part of. God, God forbid they had a court case where it was proven that it was it was a dreamt at work of fiction. No. It's one of the few cases I've got time for Joe Nichols' sceptical destruction of the story, actually. The Lutzes? Mm. Oh, yeah. Because Nichols even checked the weather reports to prove that none of the stuff could have happened on, you know, like he was saying that footprints were left in the snow. Did snow. Yeah. Oh, God. I, Paul, yeah. I remember, I think one of my favorite episodes I did from the, like, the old show uh, was episode, oh, fuck, what was it? 13 or 14. It's called If It Ain't Haunted, Don't Fix It. Mm. And I kind of went and did that. I went and just found a bunch of sh- things that don't make sense. And one of them was, was Amityville. And, mm. and that was six years ago. And I, I, I mean, mm. admittedly, of course, this has been going on for what, 30, 40 years. But six years ago, I did a show on this is bullshit. Look, this is bullshit. They admitted this is bullshit. And you still can't swing a cat without hitting some jackass who wants to talk about the terrible haunting of the Amityville house. It makes me sad just because pe- they know there's SEO there. They know that people will click it. Because they recognize the name and they just are a bunch of ghouls desperate for some kind of fame. And so they'll, they'll pull whatever out of their ass they want. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's frustrating because every, every claim that Lutz can provide can be disproved. There is no supporting evidence whatsoever. The only person that ever, that's ever agreed to him, ironically, is the son that charges money to be interviewed. Shocked. I'm sure there's no correlation between those two things. No, 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 no. I've wasted too much of my life on Amityville already. Yep, yep. And we've wasted too much of this television show. We've wasted too much of this (laughs) podcast talking about Amityville already. But I will say nothing makes me happier than shitting on fraudsters, Paul, because the thing that pisses me off and this is the last thing we'll say, then we'll move on to the next story. The paranormal is real. Shit's happening. Something's fucking happening. Yeah. We don't have to make things up. We don't have to lie. We don't have to no. make it theatrical. We don't have to come up with a bullshit Twitter thread that gets turned into a movie. This shit is no. happening. It's happening all the time, all around us. We're bathed in it. So there's no need to make things up. No, no, no. And there are far better cases. The Endless Road Home. The other day, My ex-husband and I were talking about our old vacations, which were never actually vacations, but twice a year runs to take our kids to either boot camp or Army Advanced Individual Training, or AIT. During the course of our conversation, we were reminded of one of our last trips and how everything went sideways. We recalled that we'd had to go to Missouri to pick up our son from AIT and printed out the directions from MapQuest. The trip down Missouri was normal, nothing strange at all. Instead, we got there around 8pm, settled in and slept. The next day, we took a pretty rush look around the base, walked through the museum and decided to leave around 2 o'clock in the afternoon. As we had done before, we decided to use the directions we already had, but just in reverse. For the first few hours of the trip, that worked fine, and nothing struck either of us as being out of the ordinary. However, Once we crossed into Iowa and it started getting dark, things began to get strange. The first odd thing was that I got violently carsick. We had to stop every 20 or 30 minutes and wait a few minutes for my queasiness to pass. I've never been carsick, not before then and not since. 
but that wasn't the weirdest part. As I said, we just used the same directions in reverse to get back. But once we hit Iowa, the roads... I just don't know how to explain it best. We followed the directions exactly, with no variations. We were so cautious because obviously this was pre-GPS. Or so at least we didn't have it. We barely had cell phones and we'd gone off the trail. It would have been a pain in the ass to get it back on. We would see a sign for a town with an arrow. You know the ones. Iowa town, 30 miles. And then drive for an hour and come across the same sign for the same town. I know that doesn't sound very impressive in writing, but living it was another matter, and it kept happening. We would see the same town sign two or three times, and we absolutely should not have. The oddest thing, it took us around 10 hours, no joke, to get through Iowa. It didn't take us near that long on the way down. And my being sick is not what caused the time delay. We stopped often, yes, but never more for a few minutes, because we all just wanted to get home. It was always just long enough for the queasiness to let go, which oddly enough it did very quickly once I got out the car. The entire experience was surreal and very difficult to put into words. We've tried every explanation to square this away, but nothing fits. Something was not right that night, and we all have often wondered. It was literally the longest night of our lives. That sounds all kinds of dramatic, but for a while we all wondered if we would ever get out of the whole situation. At the time it wasn't scary. It was just so frustrating, and even that was very muted. My family has a dark sense of humour, so we tried to crack jokes about it. Are you sure you didn't take a turn into the twilight zone? Even though we all knew something wasn't right, we tried to laugh it off. So to some of the examples of what was surreal, we saw nothing that looked familiar. Yes, it was dark and not somewhere we'd been before. But on the way down, there were things we saw and took notice of. There was this little town we went through that was, well, odd. There were signs on the buildings like Town Doctor, and the buildings were all almost, but not quite Victorian, if that makes sense. When we went through it, we thought it was sort of cute and wondered what the deal was. But it was pretty deserted. Cars parked in the streets, but absolutely no traffic. No people out, except one person, a little boy on a bicycle. We didn't go through it on the way home. The entire trip back through Iowa, there was nothing that rang a bell like, oh hey, here's that weird little town, or I remember this place. In Missouri, we got there in the dark, and left in daylight, but we still recognize things. I managed to find another story of, of sort of similar uh, missing time from Iowa. And it, I found it in the book, uh, Real Encounters, Different Dimensions, and Otherworldly Beings by Brad and Shelley Steiger. Oh, what a legend. Yeah, absolutely. And th this story, you'll, you'll, yeah, you'll, you'll particularly appreciate it. And I guess the story was related to them by the journalist Patricia Ress, who mm. I'm not, I'm not familiar with. No. But the story goes, I was raised in a small town of 3,000 souls in Western Iowa, growing up in the late 1940s and 50s and graduating from high school in 1963. From about 1954 to 1961, I owned a nice little horse, mostly white with brown spots. I called him Joker. Most of my classmates and friends were farmers' daughters or sons, and many, if not most of them, also rode horses and belonged to the local country saddle club. One summer afternoon in 1955, when I was 10 years old, I promised to go riding with a friend of mine named Susie, who lived eight or nine miles out in the country. Usually I would ride out to her place, and we'd go riding together around her folks' farm, or 
maybe visit other friends nearby. There had been some tornadoes the night before, and Susie and I looked upward at the sky and saw several funnels that we believed had been generated by the storm that had passed through earlier. We rode around, decided to fish for a while in the pond across from her parents' house, and then returned to her mother's kitchen to see when we'd be having supper. By then it was nearly 6.30pm. Since it was about an hour and 15 minutes ride to get home, her mother always felt I should eat some supper with them. This was fine with me as her mother made a most heavenly cream of tomato soup with a huge biscuit in the middle and dream bars with cherry and whipped cream for dessert. Nothing anywhere tastes as good as fresh Iowa farm food. Paul, I've been missing out. Uh, if I'd known this was waiting for me in Iowa, my friend and I would have pushed through. Holy shit. <laughs> You've only got yourself to blame. Well, you know, as with so many things in my life. <laughs> We're gonna, I'm just going to jump along here a little bit. But uh, she left the house at 7, pardon me, she left Susie's house at 7.15, waved to another friend whose house she passed along the way, and then she got to the end of the long gravel road onto the highway, and it was pitch black. She said it had seemed like only a few minutes ago that the countryside was bright and sunny, and now it was like midnight dark. So she rode into town, everything was deserted, and she thought, okay, it's got to be 10, 30, 11. This is crazy. Then she noticed a large clock on the corner bank that said 3.30 in the morning. She was shocked. Anything else would have made sense. 10 p.m., okay, maybe fine. But even that was a stretch because she says that another time she had stayed at Susie's, she'd stayed late, uh, and then had visited a friend on the way home, and the friend's mother had offered her a piece of pie. But even then, the latest she got home was 9.15. So this was crazy. So she got, to, got finally to her house. Her brother drove up in his car and gave her supreme shit because she had been gone, you know, they went to the cops because she wasn't home till 3.30 in the goddamn morning. And she had absolutely no way to account for that time. But the only thing that suggested anything, and of course, who knows what this suggests, the horse was, from that point on, terrified of pigs. Yeah, I've never heard of a horse having swinophobia. Nope, that's a new one on me. And I mean, I will say that the author then went on to try and draw some parallels between this and aliens that look like pigs. We're not, I, I, I skipped that part. But um, it's interesting. The fact that the horse was, was afraid of, of pigs. Once again, it's one of those stories that the more you think about it, the stranger it gets. Because at the end of the day, it's just a young lady riding home on a horse. It just happens to take five and a half hours instead of 30 minutes. Yeah. Uh, do you know how many books Brad Steiger wrote? I do not. 170. 170. Holy shit. Wow. Are they all of the same sort of ilk? Did, or did he write on other topics? He, he just basically covered the whole gamut of Fortean subjects. So he's a lot of ghosts. He was a big believer in the ancient astronaut theory, possessions, exorcisms. Um, Interesting. His, his second wife, Shelley, who he co-wrote a lot of books, was a, was a minister, I believe. Um, oh, okay. I mean, he's only, he only passed away five years ago. He's one of those people he seems to have really dropped off the map in the last 10, 15 years. Um, hmm. I wonder if it was just an, an infirmity thing. I'm not sure because, I, I mean, he was a... I've heard him interviewed several times. He's one of those people... Yeah, he's, he's a very engaging orator of numerous stories that a lot of them you could say you have to take with a pinch of shot. I mean, I remember hearing him talking about a poltergeist case he had to deal with and him and the other four people were all picked up and thrown violently against the wall by the creature or whatever it was. 
Um, right. So th this is the uh, I caught a fish that's this big of poltergeist cases. Yeah. Um, so, but he's, he was also a very, you know, I mean, I've heard him talk about a, a very deeply intelligent man. He's one of those people I could I could listen to him. I might not believe what he's telling me, but he's he was a wonderful storyteller, a great orator. But yeah, a great story. Again, just this this notion that you're stuck in some liminal space, and, and I, again, I've I've heard a few of those. I've seen a few of them on Reddit. But nah, some of them you think, okay, well, you've seen a lot of more horror movies. Like, even with this one, to be honest, The Little Boy on the Bicycle, that's very similar to In the Mouth of Madness. You know, I, to the point that somewhere in the comments, someone actually made that reference. Mm. And the person claimed not to have seen the film. I mean, who, who's to say? Mm. You do wonder, though. Mm. But for me, I think the, the, the thing about stories like that is that, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, it's peculiar in its banality. Right. Nothing terrifying happens. It's just a collection of strange events linked together that don't make sense when you look at them overall. If you take them all in isolation, they're nothing special. But when you look at it all together, then it goes from a, a strange road trip to something a little bit more surreal. Whereas if it was an exaggeration, there would be things in it that would make you go, hmm. That's true. Yeah, that, no, that's, that's very true. I mean, although I will say some of, the, some of the scammers are getting a little more clever with that kind of shit. They're getting a little bit smarter in how they, in how they present their stories. But no, I, I do agree. I, I think it's just, it's just uneventful enough to have the ring of truth. Yeah. And the MapQuest thing. I mean, I'm always a sucker for anyone. As, as a former user of MapQuest printed directions, Paul, I, I'm, I have a great deal of sympathy. No idea what that was. <laughs> So one last thing before we, before we move on, I, and I, you, you, you may know this, I did a little bit of looking and these folks were probably taking their kids, they were taking them to um, AIT in Missouri, they were probably going to Fort Leonard Wood. Mm. Are you familiar with the Fort Leonard Wood story of the ghosts who will get you drunk? Is, is that the one where somebody got, uh, I don't know, if they, did they get kicked out or something because they claimed that they were attacked by ghosts that forced them to drink? Yeah. I can't remember much about it, but I've always laughed about it. It's one of those strange things that he, he, he got shit-faced and his excuse was that ghosts made him drink alcohol. Yeah, so <laughs> the story goes, Fort Leonard Wood, part of it, was built on the site of a town called, and this, this is true, Bloodland. <laughs> this is ominous enough. Mm. It was a small farming community, and supposedly, what, the story goes, when the residents of Bloodland were told get the fuck out you know their, their land was seized under eminent domain they were not very happy about this so supposedly they they got they all got hammered and there was a riot and i mean ultimately they still had to move their ship but this was kind of how it how it, mm. how it went down but yeah according to an article i found on um oh, i can't remember this i didn't record the site but regardless the and this again this the bloodland cemetery is still there this is a real thing it, it which is it, coincidentally the cemetery is accessible on iowa avenue but um according to local newspaper stories a soldier named james clown with a k <laughs> was court-martialed and imprisoned for a year in 1942 after he was found intoxicated and unconscious while on guard duty he had been allegedly been assigned to patrol the part of fort leonard wood which had been bloodland and he claims that while he was on sentry duty he heard strange noises and when he went to go investigate he was taken captive by riotous ghosts who spoke in a language he could not understand and they forced him to drink hard cider through a straw until he passed out drunk yeah hard cider does that to a man 
I'm a woman. Well, that that is true. I mean, I'm surprised he didn't try and fight the ghosts with all the hard cider in him. <laughs> Stranger things uh, have happened. What, a man trying to fight ghosts on hard cider? Yeah, there was a very famous case here in, in the 19th century of, of someone who was running around pretending to be a ghost and somebody shot and killed him. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. There was a story, I think it was last episode, you and I briefly, we were talking about um, old Hollywood mm. and I mentioned that book, Tinseltown. Yeah about the word, the murder of, I want to say William Desmond. Mm. I think that was the name of the director who was murdered. I'm not hundred mm. percent, but one of the stories as I recall from that book is there was this, they were trying to, they were trying to figure out how much this one guy knew and they believed that he was culturally more likely to be scared by ghosts because of idiot racism. So they tried to dress a guy up as a ghost to scare him into revealing what he knew. And I just have to imagine this guy had the look on his face like my cat after it figured out I was holding the laser pointer. Like, how dumb do you think I am? <laughs> Give me a fucking break. <laughs> oh, it's a ghost. You better tell us the ghost is coming. The guy's just, no, absolutely not. I'm going to beat the shit out of both of you and take your car. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> the Hanging Heads. The weirdest experience I've ever had was at my grandparents' house. My grandparents, on my mother's side, lived in a small town in Iowa. Their house was a light gray, one-story rental that was definitely on the small side. The kitchen table across from the sink and the stove was next to the living room entryway. The house only had one bedroom, but the bathroom looked like a bedroom that had been converted by putting a bathtub, toilet, and sink on one side and putting a washer and dryer in the closet. It was cozy my mom and I visited every chance we got. Much to my delight, my cousin and aunt also visited as frequently as they could. My cousin Tyler is 11 months my junior, and my cousin Samuel is closer to five years younger than him. This experience happened when all of us were at the house together. My aunt, Tyler, and Samuel had gotten there very late, but seeing Tyler made me giddy. He was basically my brother. I have brothers, but they're all much older than me. Tyler and I were two peas in a pod, so to speak. We were so close, people mistook us for siblings, constantly. I hadn't seen him in a while, and I was absolutely jazzed he was finally here. To my horror, everyone else was not as energetic as I was. In fact, everyone was exhausted. We made up beds in the living room and my grandparents' room. I can't remember if this was before or after my grandfather had passed away, to be honest, but I do remember it was a full house. My mom stayed in her parents' room. My aunt laid down on the couch. Samuel laid two mattress cushions on the ground and called it a bed, while Tyler and I shared the pull-out mattress. Like I said, everyone else was tired, and so they quickly became frustrated with me being so hyper. I wanted to talk and goof around. I was quickly put in my place, but I was still fairly happy overall. I remember laying there, wide awake, long after everyone else seemed to be asleep. I was daydreaming about going to the park and roughhousing. Eventually, it occurred to me that if I went to sleep... I would get to do those things much faster. I tossed and turned a few times and ended up laying on my back looking out into the kitchen. The space between the kitchen and living room was very open. The only wall that was there was actually for a coat closet next to the front door. The rest of it was unimpeded, like it was all one big room. The kitchen was pretty dark that night, and I was definitely afraid of the dark. I stopped daydreaming and just looked out into it. While it made me nervous, I had so much family around me, I wasn't really afraid. I'm not sure what changed, but as I looked out there, I could feel a sense of dread creeping over me. I wanted to look away. I definitely should have. 
I didn't know that then. Instead, I got an eyeful of the wildest thing I've ever seen in my life. One moment, I was looking out into my grandparents' kitchen. I could see the white table with its silver legs. I could see the sink and the refrigerator. I could sort of make out the open doorway to the bathroom between the sink and the nearby stove. It was all as it should be. But when I blinked, there was something new. In that instant, there were at least five hanging heads in the entryway to the living room. They were hanging from the white ceiling by braided black hair around where their necks should be. Their cheeks were full and their eyes were wide. Their most distinguishing feature was that they were all colorful. If I remember correctly, there was a blue face, a green, a purple, a red, and a yellow too. Other than the vibrant colors and the fact that they all seemed a little on the small side, they looked like human heads. Some had wrinkles, one had deep-set eyes. They looked at me for a moment, and they just started laughing. I couldn't hear them laughing, but I could see it. They bounced and swayed with the effort. They would swivel and look at each other while they laughed at me, all without any attached bodies. They were only there for a few seconds. When I first saw them, I froze, my mouth gaping. I wasn't sure what I was looking at, but the hair nooses really freaked me out. Their colors really reminded me of dreams I'd had when I was much younger. I used to dream of dogs and the like in odd colors, just like they were, but I hadn't done that in years, and I knew I was wide awake. I felt my body start to shake, and I let out this short-lived scream. Just like that, they were gone. My aunt yelled at me for waking her up. Tyler whispered to me through his exhaustion and asked me if I was alright. I tried to tell him what happened, but I got shushed again. I didn't want to get in trouble, but I was scared. I considered running to my mom, but I didn't want to jump off the bed. I scooted closer to Tyler and buried my face in my pillow. I forced myself to fall asleep so I wouldn't be alone with the heads anymore. I have had scarier experiences. This is the one that's hard for me to tell people. The colors of the heads always throws me off. I wish I could explain it. I don't know why they were odd colors or all shrunken in appearance. They were smaller than normal human heads, that's for sure, but it wasn't like they looked like real shrunken heads. I don't know what was going on, and I wish it hadn't happened because it's just so weird. I know I was awake, though, and I can't forget it. And Paul, I don't know if... if do you ever see that movie Shrunken Heads? Yes. I, a little while back, I read Charlie Band's book. I think it's called Confessions of a Puppet Master, and he talks about making that movie. And he said, that movie should have been a hit, but not, we realized once we screened it that no one could get past the murder of the children at the beginning of the film, which then became the shrunken heads. And I thought, it's fascinating it took that long to figure out that the audience would have a hard time getting on board with watching a couple of kids mowed down in front of them as part of your yuck, yuck comedy fest. And yet people love Pet cemetery. But that's not meant to be a comedy. <laughs> I, well, I assume. Yeah, well, there are strange things. There is a, a, a classic horror film that very rarely gets shown these days called is it the four schools of jonathan drake oh i don't know that one at all and that's all to do with shrunken heads and and a family believe that they are cursed the the sons always die mysterious painful deaths in bed and it turns out that there is uh, strange things afoot in the uh, in the family and all is not what it seems but it's quite a good it's quite a good uh, little boiler uh, ghostly boiler type film it just trundles along quite nicely it's one of those films if you've never seen it, it's worth a watch there are far far worse films made in that era that people know probably far better well i gotta say paul speaking of worse films 
So obviously we, I've got the show Weird Together and I and we the whole point is like celebrating independent horror films. So I I don't put things on the show that I think are shit. I, there has to be something I like about them. And it's my job. I'm the one who goes through and watches movies until I find something that I think is a good fit for the show. So lately, uh, obviously with everything going on, there's, it doesn't seem to be as many indie horror films coming out at the moment. So, and maybe it's just timing too. I'm not sure. I mean, there's some great stuff in cinemas. Uh, talk to me is fucking brilliant, but that's a little bigger than we would ordinarily put on the show. So I wanted to look for really indie stuff just to try and give some, uh, give some attention to things which might not ordinarily get it. And that led me to cruising through the new releases on Tubi. And you want to talk about a hive of scum and villainy. <laughs> the <laughs> new horror section on Tubi. That's like the bus station in LA. It, you just, you don't know what's coming off any of the buses. There are several predators hanging around looking for easy prey. It was, yeah, it was scary. And not the fun kind. And so I, I sat down with a couple different movies. Found one that I actually think is pretty good. I think we, were gonna, we might do the show. But... There was one on there, man. I sent you the video. And I'm not going to say what it is because I don't want to bag on it. I'll tell you off air. But, dude, this thing, it looked like someone took a bunch of cutscenes from those interactive movies that came out in the late 90s, combined it with some in-game footage from a modded Grand Theft Auto V, and narrated over top of it. And I don't even mean this guy had great narrative voice. It, it sounds like if, like if Barney Fife was reading the Necronomicon to you. <laughs> and, and the lead himself, again, I'm not a fitness model. I'm in way better shape than I used to be, but I'm still never going to be gracing the cover of Men's Health magazine. This guy, earlier off air, which we'll probably end up sharing somewhere, we were talking about certain people at conventions who like to dress up and do stuff to each other. <laughs> this guy likes to watch in his trench coat. That's, that's the kind of situation we're talking about here. He had this big, gross, gray salt and pepper mustache. And again, all of it wrapped in a trench coat straight from 1997. I have seen some trash. You and I watched blood-sucking pharaohs in Pittsburgh together. <laughs> I turned this thing off. Allegedly, Michael Madsen was going to make an appearance at some point, but I didn't want to see him like that. I felt bad for Michael Madsen and everyone else who was involved. Because there's a couple other folks whose names were in the credits I recognized. But the entire time I saw it, it was literally just this plus-sized gentleman nasally saying strange things while this game footage played in the background. It was inane. I didn't know what to take from the bit you shared with me. Uh, I, I didn't understand what was happening on any level. I put it to you that he does not either. <laughs> <laughs> in chains when i was a little kid my mum used to work at an old assisted living home way out in the countryside of our home state of iowa being a single parent with very little income it wasn't uncommon for her to bring me to work with her when she couldn't afford a babysitter or my other siblings weren't available the people there were nice enough the other employees treated me kindly and tried to entertain me whenever possible. The patients were all right too. And the clientele, as if you'd call them that, ranged from recovering alcoholics to mentally disabled adults. But I never came across anyone unkind. Working the night shift, it was pretty rare for any of the people living there to be awake while I was there. I distinctly remember a big room away from the main foyer where my mum's office was, with a TV and a PS2. They only had one Ninja Turtles game, 
and I spent God knows how many hours playing it in the dark by myself. On a particularly long and boring night, I decided I was bored with the game and started wandering around the building. The building was three stories tall with a lot of different places to explore. However, my mum had made it very clear where I was and was not allowed to be, and I was never to go anywhere else without letting her know beforehand. Tonight, I didn't listen to her. I ended up going up the north stairwell at the end of the building, playing on the stairs and whatever else a child could do until I found myself on the very top floor. A large door hung partially open with nothing visible but darkness inside the entirety of the wing. I remember thinking it was strange that no lights were on as they always kept at least minimal lightning on, just in case one of the patients happened to get up in the middle of the night. I was puzzled and the naivety of a young curious child knows no fear, so I began to slowly walk through the door. Once on the other side, the only light visible was what came from the stairwell behind me. Once on the other side, the only light visible was what came from the stairwell behind me. Looking ahead, I saw nothing, not even the red letters of an exit sign. I took a few steps more into the darkened floor before me, before I heard it. I couldn't be sure what it was saying exactly, but I remember hearing murmurs in the dark. I couldn't make it out as faint as it was, but it sounded like people talking amongst themselves off in the distance. Just beyond those faint voices, I thought I heard something like a metal chain rattling on the floor. I knew the sound well from a time my mum had had to have her car towed, and they had hooked up her car to the chain. I remember being puzzled and after a brief moment of listening to the noise, I started to fumble for a light switch on the wall. I eventually found one, but flipping it did nothing, so I ended up returning downstairs to find my mum. Walking down the stairwell once again, I could still hear the babbling and the chain dragging from behind that door. Entering my mum's office, I walked up to her while she scribbled incessantly on a piece of paper. Mum, you need to turn the lights on upstairs. The people are walking around in the dark and I couldn't turn them on. She looked up from her paper at me, puzzled. What people? And what do you mean upstairs? The upper floor is just storage, honey. No, I went up there. I heard people talking and wandering around in the dark. It sounded like they were playing with a chain or something. Her face went white at this, and she looked behind me to a co-worker who also looked equally scared. I began to think I was in trouble having gone somewhere without asking and began to apologise profusely, but my mum just shrugged it off. Without saying anything else to me, she grabbed her desk phone and called someone. With her back turned to me, I could only make out, go and see if that door is open, before she hung up. As the night went on, I began to relax again when I realised that I wasn't in trouble, though I noticed that my mother had her eyes on me constantly from that point on. Years later, as an adult, I was reminded of the event when I found an old picture of me as a child with one of the patients I knew back then, a nice guy named Lance who was a recovering alcoholic. I ended up asking my mum exactly what happened that night as my recollection was a bit fuzzy. She seemed hesitant at first, but she came round with a bit of persuasion on my end. She went on to tell me that the floor I had gone up to, the very top floor, had not been in use for many decades for anything other than storage. However, in the building's early life, that floor had housed violently mentally ill patients that they used to have there. On that floor, one would hear babbling throughout the wing, 
along with the occasional muffled scream of someone undergoing electroshock therapy to cure them. As she was explaining this to me, I thought back to the voices I knew I'd heard that night, talking to anyone and answering no one. However, I felt the hair on my neck stand up when she told me that for especially violent patients, they would restrain them with iron shackles they had bolted to the walls in certain areas of the wing. She told me that as far as she knew, the chains were still bolted to the walls that night I wandered up there as a child. And of course, we were talking about the you know, horrendous treatment of the mentally ill, and this chained to the wall sounds like it qualifies. Shocking. I've got, um, I've got a couple of relatives who went through mental health treatment over here in the 60s, and that was essentially being electrocuted until you stopped telling them that you weren't very well. Jesus. Gross. It just, yeah, stagger, staggering in its, in its cruelty. I mean, obviously they don't name it, but that, there's only one particular place that could possibly be in Iowa that has a reputation for that kind of haunting and history. Which one's that? It's, is it the Independence Hospital? Yeah, that, that was my guess too, was the, the hospital in Independence. I think it's Independence State Mental Institution. Yeah, because it's, um, I mean, it's still in use. They do allow people to go ghost hunting there. Yes. Um, but it's got wings that nobody uses, which always makes you think, especially in this day and age with the price of rental, why would you have such a big building with wings that nobody uses? That's not uncommon. I mean, the, there's the, um, what's it called, Tronquille, that old asylum outside of Kamloops, BC. I mean, there's ho- whole buildings there that are just vacant. And I mean, they could be refitted to, you know, for residences, but they just, they just haven't. There's so much. I mean... I remember when I did the, the research on Detroit for the Detroit episode a long time ago, there at that time, the Packard plant was still there and it was just, you know, tens of thousands of square feet, just empty. So that's, that's weirdly not uncommon. Mm. I mean, I mean there's, there's lots of property like that, you know, offices and things in Sheffield, but there are empty. But I, I am, I always find it strange when a part of a building is used and there are parts that are just left. It just strikes me as odd. I know, I don't understand it. I assume there's some kind of calculus involved, but um, yeah. Or ghosts. Well, or, or that. When I was looking around to try and figure out if that was, you know, again, like I said, independence seemed to be the, I, I didn't know it going in. I, I did some looking afterwards, but I found two other hospital ghosts I thought were kind of interesting. And then you got to tell me about your other Iowa ghost stories because we're we're, when we do the yeah. last story, we're not going to have time to do any commentary. Um, <laughs> but uh, so there was two, there was... Independence State Mental Hospital uh, is in Independence, Iowa, which is a little over an hour west of Dubuque. And it's not far from Cedar Rapids, where there's Coe College. And apparently Coe College is haunted by the ghost of a girl named Helen Roberts, who died in 1918 in the influenza epidemic. Mm. Now, this is where it all gets a little bit weird, Paul. Because her spirit, according to the article I read, which again was from the Des Moines Register, uh, her spirit has taken up residence inside of an old grandfather clock. Now, I don't know exactly how this has been determined, uh, whether people wake up in the night to see the clock looming over them holding a knife, I'm not sure, <laughs> but that is apparently the thing. Because it says during the night, the spirit has said, to, okay, the spirit, thank God, okay. So the spirit is said to appear beside people's beds, slam doors, and pull the covers off the beds. Where the fuck does the clock part come into? Well, ghosts have to live somewhere. I don't. I don't know what the problem is here. <laughs> Silly me! How, how, oh man! 
What was I thinking? Jeez. A lot of room in a grandfather clock. Quite roomy. I suppose, if you're the borrowers. Yeah. What a chime to be alive. <laughs> if I didn't need to hear your stories, I would, I would end this recording so hard. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to wind you up. Oh. Oh. You've got to hand it to me there, haven't you? Oh. <laughs> Look at my face. Anyways, uh, so tell us your ghost stories, you bastard. Yeah, I have to say, my favourite ghost story from Iowa is is probably absolute... Well, it, I think it is absolute nonsense, but it's just such a weird one. So there's a bridge in Iowa called Rainbow Bridge, which okay. has a very specific ghost. And this ghost loves chocolate. Naturally. So, if you leave a bar of chocolate on the bridge and come back, you will notice that the wrapper is still there. But the chocolate has gone. Okay. And that makes no sense. And I've never heard of a ghost that likes chocolate before, but I just thought I have to share it because everybody needs to know about the chocolate-loving ghost of Rainbow Bridge. Or the alternate title, the chocolate-loving hobo who lives underneath. (laughs) Who's got the ability to suck chocolate through a wrapper. Very popular fellow. <laughs> yes, reminds me of a story about Blackpool, but anyway. <laughs> Just one? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't tend to go. I, I went there three times and that was four times too many. And your other story? <laughs> I've forgotten the other one now. The Black Angels? Oh, yes. Iowa has a strange thing. It's, it's also got two legends attached to two different statues known as the Black Angels. So one is the traditional cursed angel. It's massive as well. I think it's eight, nine foot tall, black. And it's one of those, touch it, look at it, whatever, you're going to die. It's one of them. People who touch it die. Well, how do we know this? I mean, technically correct. Depends on your timeline. But everyone who touches a statue will eventually die. Yes. Depends how quickly. Um, So there's this one, which has got all these sort of curses and Strange things attached to it. Um, I'm not sure if it's the one that somebody tried. I think somebody was arrested because they were trying to cut their hands off it. Jesus with a, Christ. With an angle, ang, angle grinder? Yeah. So, yeah, um, I think somebody else died mucking about on it, fell off it and cracked their head open and stuff. So I think it's one of them that people have been dickheads around it and caused themselves True. serious injury. I don't think this is the angel's fault. I think this is people being dicks. As with most of mankind's problems, this is not the fault of the angels. This is people being dicks. <laughs> and so there is another black angel statue, um, which is known as the Ruth Ann Dodge Memorial. Now, this is a weird one because this statue isn't actually in a graveyard, though the body of Ruth Dodge is. The body, she's interred two miles away. And they, she had a dream after her husband died night after night of being on a beach and an angel walked out of the beach with a with a dish uh, sorry a bowl full of water and asked her to drink and it kept coming to her night after night after night and so she decided that clearly it was a message so she instructed one of the great sculptures of the era to build a bronze angel as depicted in her dream for her and it was 
planted near her home in a sort of uh, miniature garden. So there's loads of trees around it and it's just there. However, the body is in a cemetery two miles away. And so the legend goes that this angel on nights will go and fly around the area checking on people and making sure they're all right and fly around the graveyard checking on things and making sure that all the graves are looked after and will uh, visit anybody who are trespassing or treating the deceased with any lack of respect and will chase them out of the graveyard from that point on. But I find it very odd that they've got two very distinctly different stories of paranormal activity attached to two very different black angel statues. I mean, if the Bible is clear on anything, you know, the Old Testament, it is that angels are terrifying. So this is in line with what we know. <laughs> so yes, very odd, but uh, very little in Iowa comes close to the chocolate ghost of Rainbow Bridge. Which has some horrifying new context now, thanks to us. So <laughs> you're welcome, Iowa. <laughs> The people in the corn. So, in my hometown in the middle of the Midwest, there's this gas station. It's on a fairly well-used road in the middle of town, a short walk from the local airport. On the opposite end is a hotel that has changed hands many times over the years, but has mostly had a boring history. The field next to the hotel, however, is a place of interest. It's fairly large and has pretty tall grass growing all the way across it. Since the day that the hotel was built, there have been stories coming from people staying on the side of the hotel closest to the field about unusual sounds. Things like scratching on the windows or gasping from the outside. There are even apparitions seen. I visit this gas station frequently on the way to work, so I've seen quite a bit. I think the first time I saw something, it was a fairly short, heavy-set man who looked to be about 50 feet into the field, his shoulders just above the grass's highest point. Problem is, looking right at them, they disappear, so it's hard to say exactly who or what I saw. Next time, there were three. A woman in a dress, a man with a ball cap, and a man in a uniform. But as I was waiting for my gas to fill up, I realized they had vanished. Looking up from the pump, I could see a man across from me looking confused at the field. I gotta say, I said the creepiest thing I could have at the moment. I said, they don't like it when you look right at them. He clearly hadn't realized I was there and looked horrified. He said he thought he'd been going crazy because he worked at the hotel and had seen them frequently, but never had a good look. Apparently, he got frequent complaints about customers having people peeping through their windows. And when he and the security guard went to investigate, they'd find nothing. Not even footprints. But while he was looking, he would still see the figures out of the corner of his eye. And Paul, this is of course our final story, and we are, we're way over time, so we're not going to have any commentary for it. But I will say that while you were reading the last story, I had an alert from our Facebook group and our listener, Roderick, who had just posted a Children of the Corn meme. So again, yet, yet further proof that we are, yeah, right? I know. So this is the synchronicity episode. So <laughs> Iowa, the Iowa show was always meant to happen, and apparently it was meant to happen right now. <laughs> That's the power of the Hawkeye state. That's it. Undeniable. All right, folks, that was our Haunting of Iowa show. We hope you enjoyed it. Again, if you have stories of your own from Iowa, shoot us a message, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. We would love to hear them. We're always looking for more stuff. We'd love to know more about your state. So please do get in touch if you know something. All right, so we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. 
Hey there, listeners. Before you reach for that skip 15 seconds ahead button, I promise you this isn't an ad. We wanted to take a minute to talk to you about mental health. On this show, I've always tried to be as honest and open as possible about my struggles with depression and anxiety, because even though we've come a long way towards acknowledging the very real damage these things can do, there is still way too much lingering stigma about reaching out for help. And when you start to feel like there's no help, it's easy to start feeling like there's no hope. But Paul has joined me today to remind you there is always hope and there's always help. We're not going to try and talk you out of self-harming right now, because we know that's not how it works. Instead, what we wanted to do was tell you something now and hope that should things get bad, you'll remember it and make a phone call or send a text message before you make any permanent decisions. As someone who knows all too well just how important mental health can be, it's never too late to reach out. In Canada, the number to call is 133-456-4566. In the USA, the new number to call is 988. That's 988. In the UK, the number to call is 116-123 or text SHOUT, that's S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. In Australia, the number to call is 131114. However bad shit seems, it will pass. And no matter what your brain might be telling you at any given moment, and believe me when I say I know this intimately, there are people who love you and people who care deeply about how you treat yourself. Should a time come when you find yourself despairing, please know that we've both been where you are and there is a way back to the world. Take care. Welcome back. Thanks as always to Luke, Sarah, Joseph, Anthony, and everyone else who's part of the Ghost Story Guys family. Don't forget to check out Luke's podcast, Luke Lore, available everywhere fine podcasts live. Joseph, of course, is the host of The Cardinal Rule. You can find that on YouTube. That is a show about Arizona Cardinals football. And of course, thanks to you, my friend and co-host, the inimitable Paul Bestel, the paranormal Johnny Carson himself, host of Mysteries and Monsters. Paul, what's coming up on Eminem? Well, this week I take a trip to Dartmoor in the company of the marvellous Claire Casely to talk about pixies and fairies and also hear confirmation of one of my favourite British ghost stories, which is The Hairy Hands of Cornwall. Claire's grandfather is a first-hand witness to that particular story's aftermath. Oh, wow. And so I know for a fact that that event actually happened. And so she gives me a bit of background about what happened and why certain witnesses weren't believed and some other stories. And so we talk about some of the weird things that are there and her life living in a collection of cottages that seem to be very haunted in the southwest of England. So if Claire comes to look at her cottage, it's probably haunted. So she's now grown out of that phase and is staying away from haunted cottages. Um, (laughs) But it's a very nice conversation and obviously... uh, we cover a lot of ground and, and subjects we've not touched on for a while, and she's a she's a very pleasant guest. And then the week after, Mr. Malcolm Robinson returns to join me. And where can everyone find you online? They can find Mysteries and Monsters across all social media platforms and podcast sites, as well as mysteriesandmonsters.com. Fabulous. I'm Largely the Truth on Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky. And you can find my other show, Weird Together. That's a show about independent horror films with Joseph Camo 
everywhere fine podcasts live. And again, that's weird together, which if you want to get into horror movies and you don't want to have to deal with a bunch of gatekeepy bullshit, we're the show for you. <laughs> and again, you'll find a link in the show notes and we're on streaming platforms everywhere. As we said at the top of the show, if you want to support us, which we deeply appreciate, you can do so by signing up at patreon.com slash ghost story guys. That's patreon.com slash ghost story guys. We have tiers at one, five, 10 and $20 levels gets you access to all kinds of cool stuff. You get bonus conversations with me and Paul with every main episode. Those are usually anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour long. So basically you get an entire other episode every two weeks. You get weekly episodes of Host Adventures, which is the show where I just kind of talk about what's going on with me. At the higher tiers, you get access to our monthly live show where you get both the audio and video versions of that after the fact. So if you're not able to join us live, you can listen or watch to your heart's content. And again, you find out more about that at patreon.com slash ghost story guys, or by signing up to GST premium via Apple podcasts. If you want to pick up some ghost story guys, merch, head to our website at ghoststoryguys.com. We have all kinds of cool stuff. We've got t-shirts, travel mugs, stickers. Uh, you can even make, if you want a one-time donation to the show, if you're not into the whole Patreon thing, but you want to support us, that is always welcome. And you will get a personalized thank you video for me. Might be a little bit late because that's how I do things, but you will get a personalized thank you video. I promise. Paul, do you have any guest spots coming up? Uh, not at the moment. I'm I'm still dealing with the ramifications of appearing on the marvelous supernatural circumstances. That was my last appearance for the for the foreseeable future. I'm too busy now. Uh, I'm writing and, and finishing off my uh, presentation for for Paramit. Though I am obviously off to the Lake District at the end of the month and going on a ghost hunt whilst I'm there. Very cool. Uh, the only thing I've got going on lately, I did some narration for Rob Christofferson's Our Strange Skies. So you can listen to that episode now. It'll, I'll post a link in the show notes. And of course, that'll be on ghoststoryguys.com as well. Shout out to our composer, Jerry Smith. Jerry is a film journalist and musician from Central California. You can find Jerry's new project, Street Witch, on streaming platforms everywhere. His debut single is out now. It is called Debut. And the debut EP will be out in about two weeks' time. I haven't uploaded it to DistroKid yet, but I'm going to do that today, and it will be out two weeks hence. And again, you can find the music at streetwitch.bandcamp.com, but the W is two Vs. Our theme song, Radio, Into the Darkness We Go, is composed and performed by Peter Kursoff of Pizanta Music. Find more from him by searching for Pizanta Music wherever you get your tunes. And that is streaming courtesy of Night Harvest Recordings, which is the Ghost Story Guy's house label. I guess that's going to do it. Well, we'll be back in two weeks. But until then, into the darkness we go. Okay, there'll be no nursery rhymes on this call. They're creepy. One, two, coming for you. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, definitely no. <laughs> definitely no. Three, four, he's at your top. Well, good luck getting in here. I had a hell of a time getting past this fucking backdrop <laughs> myself. Freddy Krueger doesn't stand a goddamn chance. I just Googled Slipknot people equal shit and someone's put meaning. I'm like, I don't know if I can make it any more clear for you, guy. <laughs>
Now my screen is frozen. <laughs> now my system just keeps freezing. And oh. I think someone else is sat with me pressing something. <laughs> the ghosts in Paul's apartment stop fucking with it. Can't remember, is this my story or your story? Me? Okay, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, I've muted right. myself. I was doing it through the power of mime. But it, I, I, and here I'm camera. looking at the script. I'm like, oh, he hasn't said anything. I wonder if he's gone. <laughs> and You're over here again. doing semaphore. You jackass. Do you look at this. No, what? No. I'm going to have a wank if Paul's not here. <laughs> no! <laughs> not again. <laughs> Trying to use your mind powers to, to do alert me to the fact you're still there. Professor X powers activate. Wolverine, put it away. <laughs> I guess I'm more the thing than I am Wolverine, but that's fine. That's what, that's what I say when I'm about to have sex. It's clobbering time. <laughs> <laughs> Coincidentally, I've never had sex. You know, you know for a fact, well, we both know that there will be people in the cosplay world that somebody ha does say that when they're about to have sex. <laughs> I hope so, Paul. I hope so. I hope there's someone out there with orange rocks strapped to them and just about to go to town and that's that's what they say. And I for one salute them. Shine on, you horny diamonds. Shine on. Well, there there is a whole um uh, whole section of uh adult entertainment featuring superheroes, isn't there? Is there? I guess I shouldn't be surprised by this. Yes. Apparently. Actually, that's yeah. I've seen, I've seen, the, I've seen someone dressed as the Hulk fucking someone. Yeah, okay, no, that's fair. Yeah. Now that I think about it, I've seen someone dressed as the Hulk boning, like painted like the Hulk boning someone. Yeah. Ah, uh, I don't know. Oh dear. Yeah. Okay. Well. Now that we know that about each other, let's just move on. 